0: Hi there, this is Watchin', and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by The Review Planner. For many of us, performance review season is about to begin. For many of us, it's also a challenge to remember all of the things that we've done during the year. So what happens is our performance reviews become a one-way conversation where our managers are telling us what they think we did during the year And without proof of our performance, it becomes incredibly hard for us to advocate for that raise, promotion, or new position that we know we deserve. So I created the Review Planner because I always wanted a tool like this, a systematic way to track all of our career accomplishments that are specifically tied to the feedback and growth areas that our managers are measuring our success by. The Review Planner helps you create a schedule for your career growth and it makes it easy to focus on the goals that you have throughout the year. With email templates, monthly checklists, built-in accountability and reminders, the planner keeps you on track to accomplish your goals and ensures you are spending your time on the things that actually move your career forward. I designed the review planner to help you focus on your career and prepare for your annual review so you can confidently speak up for yourself and earn what you deserve. To learn more about The Review Planner, head to thereviewplanner.com. Again, that's thereviewplanner.com and pre-order yours today. In this episode, you meet Tiana Conley. Tiana serves as the vice president of global cereal for the Kellogg Company, where she is responsible for the $6 billion flagship portfolio with treasured brands such as Special K, Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, and Corn Flakes. Prior to joining Kellogg, she was marketing director of Global Tequila at Bean Centauri, where she led a portfolio of five brands and oversaw operations at the, the Casa Sauza Heritage Center in Tequila, Mexico. Before joining Bean Centauri, Ms. Conley held a variety of marketing roles at Kimberly Clark and Procter & Gamble, including leading the $4 billion global bath tissue portfolio, as well as leading the P&L for the North American Olay brand. She received a Bachelor of Science degree in Chemical Engineering from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a Master of Business Administration degree from Xavier University Williams College of Business in Cincinnati, Ohio. Tiana is based in Chicago and is a mother of two children Griffin and Ava now I want you to get ready to be blown away. Tiana has done so much work, and when she gets into her background and the things that she has accomplished professionally, I was, like my mouth was open the entire interview, but she gives some really concrete and tangible um, pieces of advice that you can apply today as it pertains to your salary negotiations, as it pertains to new roles, as it pertains to specific language that you may um, want to incorporate in your vocabulary as you talk about your career things. So, As always, grab your I Choose a Ladder notebook and pen, your favorite beverage, and get ready to go to work. Hi, Tiana. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, So... I stopped you for a while on so on the socials and then we finally got you at the climb and now based on the feedback from um, attendees that we had I thought that it would be appropriate to expose you to the larger I choose the ladder universe and um, bring you on the podcast So I'm glad that we were able to make this work before 2021. Um, but my first question to you I think when people um, see your title, they see the brand that you work for, they are super intimidated, whether like for you, it's this is just your life. But how did you even end up in corporate America? Like, is it something that your parents told you to aspire for? Like, how did you even know corporate was a thing?
1: Yeah, I totally did not end up in corporate America on purpose.
0: <laughs> um,
1: I, I didn't know what corporate America was. So, um, you know, I'm from Chicago. Um, well, let me back up. If you're from Chicago, I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> if you're not from Chicago, I'm from Chicago. Um, you know, but I I went to um, private grade school and public high school, and um, you know, I come from a middle class family. Um, my mom works in um, in in payroll in in finance and work for the city of Waukegan, where I'm from. My dad um, works in IT. And so, um, you know, my, my parents always had good good jobs, but, you know, they, and they told me I should aspire to have a good job, whatever that means. But, you know, we didn't explicitly talk about corporate America. Um, they just told me I should go to college. So I ended up studying in school uh, chemical engineering, which relates not at all to vice president of marketing and the, the way that I ended up being a chemical engineer is I was always really great at math and science. And um, here is a really powerful story. I had a, one of my very few black teachers in high school, um, his name was Mr. Gustaf, was a chemistry teacher. And he goes, you're really great at chemistry and you're really great at math. You should be a chemical engineer. And I said, okay, I'm going to check that box as my major. And then that's how I literally picked my major for college. And that's how I w- went to school to be a chemical engineer. I didn't even know what that was. I couldn't articulate to you what a chemical engineer was. I, mean, I may have looked it up in an encyclopedia because that was a thing back at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did perhaps maybe some research on what the salaries were for chemical engineers. And I'm like, oh, they get paid well. They get paid well of uh even best amongst engineers. I think it was chemical and mechanical engineers. And I'm like, that sounds great. I'd like to earn a lot of money. I like math and science. Let's do this. Um, so I ended up going to school for um for engineering and um connected with that a lot. Uh did all my internships in engineering. And uh, and and uh and through my internships is how I got exposed. To corporate America. So I did three internships when I was in college. Um, The first one was with Abbott Labs, which is um, which is in the suburbs of Chicago. It's a pharmaceutical company. The second one was with uh, General Mills, which is um, out in uh, Minneapolis. And the third one was with Procter and Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, after my internship with Procter and Gamble, they offered me full-time employment and
0: that's how I ended up in corporate America. What? Okay, so first of all, it's wild that you just picked your major because a teacher was like, hey, do this, and you're like, all right, like, because chemical engineering is not, it's not like they said be an English major, right? It's like (laughs) engineering is one of the hardest majors to to have in life. My dad is an engineer. He's a civil engineer, Um, but, and I remember being in high school and him trying to, like, understand how his child could not be good at math because I'm absolutely not good at math. And so to just be like, yeah, so I decided and then it worked out like that's phenomenal. Um, But thinking back to your Procter & Gamble, um, your internship, right? Uh, your full-time job. So going from college, um, I don't think that there are a lot of, and your program may have been different in terms of diversity of the people in your program in undergrad, right? Like, I don't know the chemical engineering school, was it like very diverse? Do you remember? No, there were, there were uh, four other black people. That was my study group.
1: There were like maybe uh, two other Muslim girls uh, from the Middle East and they, they were also in my study group. You know, it was not very diverse. I mean, I went to University of Illinois undergrad. So it as a whole being, you know, uh, located not very far from Chicago mm-hmm. had, I think, better diversity than it, you know, than a, as a Big Ten school. But um, yeah, within my actual major engineering overall, and definitely not chemical engineering w- was very diverse. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, when, when you go to PNG like what is the role? So um, I, I had done different Disciplines, or had kind of understood different disciplines um, within research and development, uh, was kind of the area I was landing in. So I had done um, I had done a couple of different things in my internships. The first one, when I was at, at Abbott Laboratories, was I worked on the launch of Prevacid, which was a um, an anti an antacid drug. Um, it was a really a big deal. And um, I actually did more mechanical engineering. Um, they I I worked on a, a safety protocol for the installation of part of the line. So I wrote like basically like a safety manual for uh how to operate that line, which was really neat. Um I don't know if it was all that earth shattering for anyone else. It was pretty interesting to me. Uh, you know, hashtag nerd. Um <laughs> nerd life but um the second internship i did was i was um more like a product developer a food scientist when i was at um at general Mills, not you're making me really search my memory bank here but i worked on um i actually worked on betty crocker frosting and i did a, a formula cost savings i reformulated all of their frostings i think it was like a couple million in cost savings that I did, but uh, basically like reformulated out um, and, and put lower cost ingredients in place of higher cost ingredients. And uh, it was a really cool um, experience because I had to um, basically kind of experiment with different levels of types of ingredients. And um, it's really neat how how it's done because you you basically have to bake cakes and frost them. And the way that you ascertain, like, can people tell the difference is you do triangle tests, so you have to bake a whole bunch of cakes with kind of the current formula and the new formula, and then people test them and tell you, can you you pick out which one's different. Got it, got it. Um, And then the other thing I had to do was scale that up formulas that I had kind of made on a bench top into a pilot plant, which is uh, essentially like a, a bigger production. Um, and so, that you know, that's another part of that, which was kind of cool. And then when I went to Procter & Gamble, I did something different altogether, um, which is kind of unique in the industry from a technical standpoint, which is called products research. And that is um, essentially like, a, I call it like a liaison between a technical uh, like R&D type of role and uh, and like consumers. And so like scientists sometimes create things like science and technology and then, um, and then it's like, great, this is science and people are like, I don't understand what that is or what that does. Um, my job was to kind of translate the technology into something consumers understood. So um, that would basically mean like claims and demos. So it's like, we have this great technology, how do we tell people what it does and, and what it's gonna do for you. So, a, a good example is one of the things I worked on was Tide with a Touch of Downy. And I would basically go out and buy like a whole bunch of different clothes and try to show off how well the product performed versus like a competitor or something like that. So, you know, you wash it 20 times and, and Purex or 20 times and Tide with a Touch of Downy, look at how new the shirt looks versus um, with, with Purex. Um, you know, and, and that sort of thing, it's, you know, looks five times newer, that sort of thing. Um, or this sock is, you know, 10 times wider than the other sock. And that's actually how I, um, discovered and fell in love with marketing. So when I, um, one of the duties that I had to do was to, uh, supervise, um, claims and demos for TV shoots. Mm, yeah. And I was um, on the shoot for, um, for Ase, which was in Puerto Rico, which is just um, the um, Puerto Rican version of, of TIDE. And um, there was like this white pair of jeans that we were showcasing that yes. removed a stain. And, uh, I, I just kind of had this epiphany where, uh, you know, as we we're kind of like, I was kind of supervising them shooting these jeans and I'm like, I really would rather be working on the advertising part of this than the technical part of this. And, um, this was maybe like a year into my career and I came back and I, you know, I, I told my boss, I'm like, I think I want to work on marketing. Mm. And, and they're like, Okay, um, why don't we set up um, what they call a broadening assignment. We're going to set up a broadening assignment for you. So you can go work in marketing for six months. And if it doesn't work out, like you're not very good at it, we'll we'll take you back into R&D. And we'll just kind of call that a failed learning experiment. Like you got some other experience or exposure, and then you can kind of come back.
0: Is that common, right? Because I think that uh, the conversations that we tend to have um, are around people who want to pivot, but don't necessarily feel like they know what the actual avenues are or what the right route is to go about doing that. So do you think your experience with pivoting was common? And if it's not, if there's someone who's listening, who's like, oh, man, I wish I had a broadening experience," or, or I wish there was a way for me to think about pivoting, what would you say to them?
1: Um, I I think it is not Common, generally in the industry, I think it was very common at Procter and Gamble. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was one of I think the great things about working there, um, because they have a promote from within philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so if they don't develop the talent that they have, they won't have any talent to develop. There, it's not like they're going and sourcing great talent from competitors. If they they don't take the people they have and really ensure that they have rich um, career experiences, they won't have a pipeline for future leaders at the company. They literally do not hire in, like they wouldn't take me as a vice president um, at Kellogg and bring me in as a vice president at at Procter & Gamble. So they invest extremely heavily in making sure people have great um, leadership experience. So it was a phenomenal place to start my career. So I would say there, quite a number of people had had great um, broadening experiences. I would say in the industry outside of, you know, that um, kind of limited silo at that particular company, the way that people tend to work cross-functional changes or pivots is that they go to business school and they pay a bunch of money. Um, or maybe they are able to get their company to sponsor them and they, you know, go back to B school or whatever it is. Um, and then they utilize that experience to to pivot. So if I wasn't working there, I would have then uh, gone back, maybe got my MBA and utilize my MBA as a springboard to go be an entry level marketer at another company.
0: Got it. And so, since your background like your family background wasn't necessarily super corporate, and like knowing what we know now about mentorship and sponsorship like during that early phase did you have mentors, and if so, how did you leverage them, and if you didn't, how did you figure out how to navigate that space.
1: Oh my goodness. Yes. I had a lot of mentors. I don't know that I always and immediately internalize them as mentors, but uh, I would say earlier in my career, before I knew the terminology mentor, I was like, this person seems smart and successful. And they're telling me something that I should do to also be smart and successful. So I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of, in a way, almost did it in a way that was uh, almost blissfully ignorant. So the example being my teacher saying, you're great at math and science, you should be a chemical engineer. And I went, okay, and then I did that. Mm. (laughs) I literally, that was literally how I um, worked the early years of my career. You know, there would be, you know, a director and they would say, I think that you would be great on this part of the business. you should take an assignment over here. And I'd be like, great. They seem like they know what they're doing. They're pretty successful. Um, I respect them. I'm going to go do that. And then I would do it. And it worked out really well. So I, I, you know, honestly, I didn't, I didn't even ask a whole lot of questions. I'm just like, this seems credible. Um, this person seems credible. They seem successful. You know, I, I wouldn't even necessarily say, I was like, are they looking for my best interests or not? Uh, I, that wasn't even like a, a metric that I was considering. It just was like, they seem like they know what they're doing more so than I do. They seem pretty successful at what they're doing. Um, I respect them. That seems like pretty logical advice. I'm going to follow it. And um, almost 10 times out of 10, actually 10 times out of 10, it worked out favorably for me. I can't I cannot think of one time when I did it and it didn't work out Um, it wasn't really until later that I became more discerning and more intentional about how I pursued mentorship or got more sophisticated in a philosophy around mentorship and 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 said I want to you know actually um try to be more in um explicit about how I develop mentorship, relationships, and so on. I think a lot of the things that eventually became part of my philosophy, I was naturally doing, but I didn't really kind of form a any kind of cohesive strategic intent or approach around how to do that in, in the earlier years. I was
0: literally flying by the seat of my pants. So let's talk a little bit about that. So now that you're more senior, you have more experience, more work experience, obviously, Like, what is your your philosophy on mentorship and sponsorship?
1: yeah so i would say from a a mentorship standpoint um that it works really well uh for me or has worked really well for me when it comes from an organic um authentic or starting point in a relationship so whether that's some kind of natural connection that you have um you know sometimes people will say well i don't have a strong um ability to network or I'm a shy networker, or I don't have um, like a natural built-in network. And they'll say, how do I build like a mentorship base? And I said, well, have you ever had a boss before? Yes. Has that boss ever moved on to another assignment? Yes. Okay. That's a mentor because it's someone who intimately knows you and intimately knows your work. So my advice to you would be, if you think about people that you've, worked with that know your work really well that you've had a rapport with that you continue to foster um and feed those relationships over time like assuming you had a good relationship That's with what them I was gonna say you know, the, the mean, if, that is
0: you you need to have done good work for that person. Right. So if right. you went with somebody and like your relationship yeah. with them was terrible and yeah. you didn't produce what they were expecting you to produce. Yeah I would say think yeah. about that, somebody that else. might
1: not be the one but you know assuming you know I mean I'm a assu- you know assuming that it went well, um, you know, I, I think you can expand that philosophy to bosses, to teams, to partners, um, that you work with. Right. So, um, you know, in marketing that looks for me, that looked like people that were cross-functional partners. You know, I worked with leaders in R and worked with leaders in, um, in insights. I worked with, um, people on agency teams that, Uh, rotate all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've, there's been people I've worked on that I've really loved working with that have moved on to something else that we've accomplished something great together. Um, And I'm like, let's keep in touch. (laughs) And let's continue to fertilize this relationship. And a lot of times, those people have moved on to bigger and better things inside or outside of the company. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's been a great way to kind of, you know, maintain relationships or you know, there they've been people that I've learned from on the job that I'm like, I'd like to continue learning from you. Yeah. Or I'm sad we're not working together anymore. So, you know, I, I've I've kind of approached people in that way and said, hey, let's let's continue. And I think after you've kind of had a collection of of that, after you've done a couple of rotations, you start to say, hey, look, I have a meaningful number of people that I that are in my network that know know me well enough. So you, so then you don't really feel like you need to kind of go out there and um you know pardon the expression like whore yourself out there and be like you know do 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 a bunch of cold calls like you actually organically have built this set of people that have a strong um understanding of who you are and what your work and and deliverables are and have experienced that tangibly on a firsthand basis. Mm-hmm. Now sponsorship is something totally different um because Sponsor, mentorship is kind of like, I think of like a coach, someone who gives you advice, someone who you can learn from their experience. Sponsorship is someone who is going to open a door or make something explicit or tangible happen for you, like a promotion, um, advocate for you, uh, create a a specific opportunity for you. Um, And sometimes that sponsor is known to you. And many times that sponsor is not known to you. Mm -hmm. So um, sponsors in my opinion have been much trickier um, because I, I know that sometimes someone has sponsored me and I haven't known who that person is. It just might be someone who sees something in you decides that for whatever reason they have affinity for you or belief in you or your potential and wants to advocate for you. Um, And they may choose to reveal that to you or they may choose not to reveal that to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not really something you have control over other than just to show up, be your authentic self and deliver. Um, But it's very difficult to um, make that manifest, if you will, And in my experience. Now, other people may have had different experiences of that. But for me, um, I I haven't, if, if someone else knows the secret sauce on that one, I'd
0: personally like to learn from them. And I know that like for, you know, it's very well documented that for black people, it's harder, right? It's because people tend to mentor and sponsor people who look like them. And because there are not tons of black people in positions of leadership where they have both the wisdom and the power, right? Like, and to to be able to advocate for X amount of people, I think there's the, we've been having conversations around, you know, leaders don't want to feel like yeah, she's always advocating for the black girl or like trying to avoid that stigma or don't wanna feel like they're always the person who's like, every time there's an issue, like you're the person that's bringing the black issue to the table or whatever those conversations are. And so sponsorship, I think that mentorship is a little bit different because your mentor doesn't have to be in your organization, right? You can get like wise counsel from tons of different places whereas your sponsor has to be an employee with some power within your organization. So I think you're right, it it is trickier. Um, and it, it, figuring out like who to build strategic relationships with isn't necessarily something that's taught right like orca- organic strategic relationships with people and so I, I, I agree like there's been a lot of conversations around struggling to find people who can mentor and sponsor black women or just like women in general in the workplace but specifically black women just because of, of the difference um but here's the thing so you talk I mean, about my personal my personal philosophy
1: on sponsorship for me and how I approach that is I don't like to do invisible sponsorship or um or let me take it a different way. I when I mentor somebody, I am an active mentor. Like I'm not a passive mentor. So I'm I don't I don't like take mentorship lightly. Like if I say that I'm your mentor. Um, trust that I'm advocating and making things happen for you in a tangible way. So I, you know, if I'm giving you like a general light piece of advice, like it's kind I kind of take it the same way, like on a personal level, when I think about friendship, like if I call you my friend, you know, a lot of things about me, you have my personal cell phone number, you know, my kids names, you know, their ages, you know, my personal business, you know, it's, it's a very tight to the chest thing. You know, if if we're not on that level, we're, we're just probably cool with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of think about mentorship the same way. Like if I say that I'm mentoring for you, I am sticking my neck out for you. I'm advocating for you. I'm making things actively happen for you. I'm helping you actively achieve goals that you have, um, that sort of thing. So I, you know, it, I'm, I'm not like a
0: passive mentor. So the way that you just um, described that, like made me think of something, because the way you just described it, that's a very Black girl way to describe it, like we are the friends that we cool, right? And so that had, and for like a Black person here is that like, we act like we know what you need, right? So as, as you think about bringing your authentic self to work, right, that as a Black woman in senior leadership in a large organization, in a highly visible role, overseeing marketing for one of the, like, for some of the more highly visible, uh, brands within the company, how do you think about bringing your authentic self to work?
1: Um, I don't know how not to be my authentic self. Um, I would say maybe earlier in my career, I struggled with it more because I think I had, a a feeling about what is professionalism? And and is that me? And I think like a lot of of Black people, a lot of Black women, you know, brown people, people that don't fit kind of the stereotypical um, white male archetype, um, or, you know, cis hetero white male archetype, that if you don't live up to what that quote unquote, norm is that you may feel a, a disconnect from, uh, from if that's the norm of what professionalism is, am I professional? Um, I, I think perhaps maybe earlier in my career, I, I struggle with that a lot, but what I, what I found was that kind of trying to mold myself into, I'm not sure what I'm trying to mold myself into felt really exhausting to me and really heavy and, um, and really confining. And, um, and I just decided one day that I was going to let that go. And I'm like, I did, because the real me is bursting through anyhow, and I'm not faking this very well. Mm -hmm. So it it was very early in my career that I made a really conscious decision that I'm just going to show up and be me. Like, I'm going to use like slang this day. I'm just going to use slang this day. If I'm going to wear this, like kind of eccentric outfit, I'm just going to wear, you know, whatever people consider eccentric. like, I'm just going to show up and be me. And, you know, if they realize that I like rap, oh, well, like, yes, I like Beyonce, whatever it is. Um, and I'm just, I'm going to show up and I'm going to see what happens. Like, and I guess if they fire me, I wasn't meant to work there. And then I, then I did it. And then like, nothing bad happened. And then I just leaned into it more and more, and like what I found was that instead of people having like a negative reaction, had more of a positive reaction because I think that what people were responding to was my authenticity, mm-hmm. and they were resonating and connecting with that. And so the more that I, the more that I leaned into who I am, the more people um, connected with me and responded positively to me in the work environment. And that that po- it was like a positive reinforcement and cycle. And and so now I just like now I'm all the way me. And I just can't not be. So when I'm, you know, when I'm interviewing for a new organization, like I'm fairly new to my organization. Like I show up in the interview myself. Like if I'm going to use slang, I use slang in the interview. Like I I I am all the way myself all the way through the process because I don't want to show up one way and then they like it's like a bill of goods when I get there for real. Like I I am authentic all the way and I'm really super clear about who I am, what I'm about, you know, that I'm, you know, what I stand for. I'm unapologetically black, I'm unapologetically Asian, I'm unapologetically a woman, I'm unapologetically myself. And um and I want people to really see what they're buying and be really clear on that. And and I'm super okay that if you see what I offer and that's not for you, that you pass on it, because I feel like if that's not for you, um, it's better for both of us that 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 that, that didn't work out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that if you do see what you what you're getting and you buy it, it's going to be a really good fit. Mm-hmm. So um, that ha- I I took that risk a really long time ago. It paid off. I'm really happy about it. Um, it seems to be working out. It hasn't failed me yet, but I, I kind of feel like, listen, I'm super good with a repercussion on that because I feel like, um, you know, the day I show up who I am and that um, cost me my job, I just understand that's not the
0: place for me. So let's talk a little bit about Blackness at work, right? So I think that there is one, there's a lot of conversation around being black, right? And then like, what is black? What isn't black, blah, blah, blah. Um, So you mentioned being unapologetically black and being unapologetically Asian. Do you like, do you find that people treat you different because you're both of those things? Is there like confusion around like, well, is she, is she not, especially with like all of like people, I guess there's like a great awakening that's happening right now with like social injustice and all those things. And so do you feel like like people relate to you differently, right? Because as some, like for me, like if you meet me, you see me, you know that I'm black, and I'm just black, right? Like there's no people are like, oh, I can put her in this box. Whereas with you, I feel like it's a little harder for people to like. They're like, well, we know she's black. When we know she's this and we know she's that, like, how do you, how do you navigate that space in the workplace?
1: Well, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think to people that aren't black, I'm black. <laughs> like they're like, yep, black. Um, I think to people that are black, it's a head scratch, like she, she's blackish, like something's going on, like she's like, I don't know, like the black sense there, like, but the hair, what's going on, um, it's a little wavy, I, I don't know, something's happening. Um, so, and, but I don't really think that's unique to the workplace. Like that's kind of been like the since childhood, you know, it's, and, and so I'm kind of like over the trauma of like not fitting in people's boxes. And I just understand I don't fit for some people mm-hmm. and that's not, it's not going to work for some people mm-hmm. like, so for, you know, for to to white people, I'm just not white. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm like black to them. Um, for, for black people, some people are like full embrace, like totally get that you're black, like you're black and something else. But like, you know, if you're black, if you're, if you're kind of black, you're black. Um, and then some black people are like, you know what, like, you're, you're not one of us. Mm. And I get it. And I'm not for them. And I I get that. And like, I get it. Like to some black people, I'm just never like black enough. And I'm like, look, the person that called me the N word, I was black that day. Um, I've experienced the same discrimination as you. So look, I'm like, I've, I've experienced, I've had the black experience. Okay. And then, and then on the Asian side um, it's, it's the same. So some people on the Asian side are like, you're Asian, full embrace. Like we get it. You're, you're, you're one of us. And then there's some Asian people they are like, mm, no, no, that's not going to work for us. So um, you know, I've had it on both sides and I get it. So, you know, sometimes it's like, sometimes it's like you're, you're good, you're one of us. Sometimes it's like, no, you're not one of us. And then there's this kind of like other, um, I'd say like set of people that um, also kind of don't have a home. And that's another community that I found myself in. So, um, you know, it's like um, immigrant um, gay man. We're homies, you know. So because they've been othered out of their community too, and so there's this kind of like band of misfits. There, you know, of people who, you know, it's like they don't fit in any box either. Great. Now, by virtue of none of us fitting in a box, we're all in this box together, and we're, you know, we're thick. Um, So I think, you know, like I kind of, um, I don't care what other people think. I mean that might be too much, but I just, I honestly don't care because if I did, I, if I care what other people think, I think I would be nowhere in life. And I just had to really like learn that really early in life, like, because no one accepts me fully. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have to accept myself Mm -hmm. and I like, if other people get it great. And if they don't, that's their problem, not my
0: problem. And that's that on that. Um, so one of the things you talked about earlier, you said, like, when people are are feeling stuff, typically you tend to go back and get your MBA. So you went back and got your MBA. Talk me through a little bit about how you came to that decision and like, what made you feel like it would be the right thing for you to do at that time? Okay. I did
1: not go back and got my get my MBA. I got my MBA at night
0: oh. while
1: I was working full time. That was crazy. Um, it, it was crazy, and um, it was busy. Um, but but I did it. I, but I have to be honest with you. I learned everything I know about marketing on the job. So it was it it felt complete and validating to get my MBA because like as someone with an engineering degree, I'm like, do I know enough about finance? Do I know enough about marketing but I you know I feel like I learned everything um I I needed to know like in the school of hard knocks at work so um you know I I don't know that I remember all that much from my classes to be honest with you I I learned everything I needed to know at work
0: Mm. and it was
1: unnecessary it was unnecessary but my parents are really proud of me for having my MBA and I
0: also think it's so I'm going to school at night too for my MBA and I think for me the the It wasn't necessarily that I thought I was going to use anything right away. I just didn't want to get to a point in my career where I wanted to do something. And because I hadn't checked that box, now all of a sudden that opportunity is no longer available to me. And like, and if you're going to be in senior leadership in the future in any of these corporations, you're going to need some kind of an advanced degree. I think the the days of 30 years of work experience getting you to like where it is without all this, I think those days are probably gone at this point. And so it was one of those like, all right it's, it, it, it grants options. Um, I don't think it's the only way to get options. But for me, it was like, all right, this is a way to like to get some options um, for myself. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think the way that I probably I think the companies I work for probably had enough cachet, but I think you kind of have to judge it for yourself. Like how is important? How important is it for you to feel like you check the box? Like, what's your motivation? Why are you doing it? That's what I would say. In hindsight, I think I could have done without it just based the companies I work for, I think, had enough um, had enough cachet. I think to, to for me to not have done it. But uh, great, it's hanging on my wall.
0: Where were you in your career when you went when you got it? Like, how senior were you? Oh, I was like very junior. Right oh, okay. So then, here's the question though: Do you think having that MBA helped give you access to those companies, or no. do you, you could have done it without it? Without yeah
1: i was i I spent 10 years at my first company Mm. so at that point i had 10 years at you know procter and gamble that was that that was going to unlock a lot of
0: doors for me so you hear that people if you're thinking about getting an mba and you have work experience for companies whose brands you can leverage you might want to you know give it give it a little bit of thought before you go and make that two hundred and fifty thousand dollar investment because that is it's a large investment
1: It's a huge investment. I mean, and I mean, I just, the, the debt, I mean, carrying that debt and and what you get in return. I mean, I just, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's enough leadership programs. You know, one of the things that, um, that I've done recently is a a leadership program with um, the Chicago Urban League called Impact. Impact. Yeah. And and um i think that was a great investment so it's a leadership development program essentially like you become a fellow you um invest like one day a week or sorry one day a month for like a year mm-hmm. and you 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 um you study with you know call it 35 to 40 other top black professionals um and you do um leadership development modules and you um and you kind of build your network and you know I, for me like I got way more out of that than
0: my entire MBA. Um but there's an MBA component to it, right? Because it's it's done in partnership with booth. So like you still it is. some of that business stuff without the 20,0. 000.
1: I'm saying what I'm saying is I would I would if I'm saying if I was at that point in my career and I, and I was choosing between an MBA and a, and a, and a black leadership type of program, mm-hmm. black leadership program all day from a, like if I was weighing out, what is it worth and what am I gonna get out of it? Um, but again, you have to kind of say, what is my motivation?
0: Yeah, and that impact network is really strong. Like the alumni community for impact, I feel like there's, um, because of how long and intensive the program is, you build like solid relationships. And so I know people who are very serious about their cohort number and like, I'm impact six, I'm this and that. And like people still get together and like hang out and, you know, and I feel like it's, I might be six. You, oh Lord, GC, (laughs) I told you, I I told you, they, they are serious about their cohorts and like, don't get the number wrong. Like, but I think that that's a great thing, right? Because then you build lifelong relationships that are not just like transactional business relationships. Um, So one question before the lightning round, and because this comes up a lot. Um, So can you think back to a time in your career where you maybe felt like stuck, right? So you mentioned that you were in a position for, like you were with a company for 10 years. So for you, how do you know, I'm sorry, and then you back up because you just recently started at a new company, right? So you've you've moved on from companies before. How do you know when it's time for you to move on to a new opportunity and then the second part of that, if you've ever felt stuck, what have you done to get unstuck?
1: Yeah, so um, how do you know you're ready? My, my thought on that is if you, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Um, meaning as a black professional, you should consider yourself as highly valuable talent um i don't i don't know too many black talents that um in their roles aren't highly performing and highly performing outperforming their peers um and or aren't being asked to like over-deliver, over-perform before they're given the opportunity to move to the next level, Mm -hmm. myself included, right? So um, what do I mean by that? Um, I've consistently seen um, talent that's not Black talent being leaned into and developed, meaning um, they're not quite ready for an opportunity, but the organization will take a risk. Um, lean into them and let them develop in a role that I've not seen that happen to a black talent ever never. in my entire career. Never. never, never in my entire career. So in other words, we have to prove ourselves time and time again and be ready before we move on to the next thing and prove ourselves. So it's funny because um, imposter syndrome is kind of something that's talked about a lot in our community and I, I honestly literally can't relate to it. I understand why people feel that way because people make other people feel that way but if I step back and think about it on a, um, logically in, a, in an analytical sense, I'm like, but why? When I look at your resume and I benchmark your resume, compared to your peers at that level, or my resume to my peers at that level, and say, well, what's your experience level? What have you delivered? Um, Have you been allowed to not deliver? Um, How have you proven yourself? What have you done um, before you've gotten at a level? You should never arrive somewhere feeling like you, like you're not ready, because they don't let you arrive if you're not ready. so how Ooh, do you know you're I ready?
0: In, I felt that in my spirit. Oh. Can you receive like, that for a moment? I need, like, I just need a moment to process. They don't let you arrive if you are not ready. Woo. I received that. It, it's the truth. It is the absolute truth. If you didn't have it
1: and you weren't ready, you would not be there. to rest. You would not be there. Mm. So, my point is that you are, when you're evaluating, that you should always be open to the next opportunity. And I always tell people that you should have your resume ready and you should always be open to headhunter calls. Um, and you should constantly be choosing either to stay where you are or move on to the next thing. Um, why should you take headhunter calls? Um, because when you take a headhunter call and you're presented an opportunity, it makes you think about one or two things. One, it makes you reaffirm that you want to be where you are and you're constantly choosing to be there and saying, this is the right thing for me. I like it. And I believe I'm getting the best career development opportunities. Um, they're investing in me. I, you know, I have the, you know, I'm being value here or you're saying, Nope, this other thing is give, providing a, a greater opportunity for me, a better value for me, um, you know, a, a, a stronger opportunity for me in the, in the marketplace. And the marketplace will continually help you validate where you stand um, in that. So you should always take headhunter calls, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: whether you intend to leave or intend to stay, because it will help you um, consistently um, evaluate for yourself um, and benchmark your own value. Mm-hmm. So um, I, you know, you can you can have a vision for what you plan to do, but you should always be open to to assessing. And and so I I think you know I don't necessarily have like a um, a set philosophy on you know getting ready, but you should just always be open. You should always be open. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think some people um, are scared to take their headhunter calls, and I'm like, you're not committing to anything by having the conversation. Just have the conversation. And if you don't want to continue the conversation at any point, you can decide to stop. Like taking the call does not in any way commit you to anything.
1: Yeah, and it helps you benchmark um, your value and assess your market value. Um, it it gives you an it and if nothing else, if you want to stay, it certainly will um, give you a great internal negotiating tool. Mm-hmm. So either for a, a promotion, um, a raise, uh, um. You know, you, you can say, listen, I would like to achieve something else, but I've been presented this other opportunity. Can you help me do better here or should I go there? Um I, I think it's a great tool um to get what you want. And we all know that you are underpaid black women.
0: Point blank in the period. Like there, like that is not up for negotiation. That is one negotiation that I, I I'm always up for a negotiation. That statement is not up for negotiation because it, it is a it's a matter. Fact. And I think because we've been conditioned as Black women to somehow feel um, grateful for just being allowed to be in the room, right? And like, we've been socialized to think, and one of the questions that we didn't get to was around communication style, right? So with all of the, the subtext going on in our minds, as we go into spaces to try to negotiate and to advocate for ourselves and all the conditioning that's happened, it almost guarantees that we will remain underpaid, right? Because we've been trained to, to feel like well you're not even supposed to be here you should just be grateful even though we over deliver in every space that we're in but for whatever but we it's been i mean it's it's the programming of of the mind i say all the time like the reason that i chose to focus specifically on black women is corporate america and america at large has done a number on the self-esteem of black women right we just were talking about imposter syndrome and the fact that even though all the data suggests that we should be feeling ourselves at all times we struggle so much with imposter syndrome. It's just like it's wild to me.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And then as far as feeling stuck, um, yeah, I definitely hit a really long period of stagnation in my career when I had kids. Um, if people tell you having kids doesn't slow down your career, they're lying. Um, I, I was, um, I was like a senior brand manager for like ever. Um, and it was really frustrating to me because, um, I was a very high performer and I just, I literally saw all oh, my peers lap me, people I had trained and developed and coached and mentored lap me. And, um, and I was just really stuck now in, in hindsight, I can look back and understand the, the broader purpose in that. I, I was, I, I, it gave me the opportunity to spend a lot of time with my kids. I had a, a major divorce that I went through. And I, I think it gave me the space to experience uh, the things I needed to on a personal side. But I mean, it was so frustrating um, at, at the time going through that. Um, what I was able to do during that time, though, was to skill build. And I um, I continued to perform and get all the skills uh, at the director level, even though I wasn't. Mm. And the way that that came full circle later is that I, um, I mean, I I advanced extremely quickly at the next levels. Mm. So it didn't have an immediate um, resolution for me at that point in time. Mm. But um, as I as I kind of look back on my collective like resume and experience base, um, it it all shook out eventually just fine. But, you know, it was looking a little tenuous there for a minute, you know, like, is this woman gonna move forward or not? Um, When I when I look at how it all came out in the wash, you know, I'm like, you know, they kind of, you know, I kind of came up in the generation where it was like, superwoman, you can have everything. And I think this the asterisk underneath that is you can have everything just not at once. And I think my not all at once was I was able to be the kind of mom I wanted to be to my kids and and be really present in that. Not have, you know, super high demands on me at, at the time that I needed to be like a, a, you know, mother to infants. Um And I was also able to advance my career. I it just didn't all happen at the same time and simultaneously. And at the end of the day, I'm grateful for that. But it was, you know, it was uh, it was tenuous at times. And, it you know, it was it was frustrating and a little bit challenging to see that at that point in time, because it felt, you know, very uneven.
0: And then I lied. Last question before the the, the, the fire set, the lightning round. So I know you. I know that you're super ambitious, right? Like you, there, like like you have career goals and all those things. But you're also a mom, right? And you also like have your own life. Like, how do you balance being ambitious and also being a good mom and also being good to yourself and also and also and and all the other also's that come with it, you know being a woman? Um, how do you look at taking making sure that you don't get lost in all of the also's?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I balance, I don't really try to balance. I think kind of work life balance is a little bit of a myth in a way. Like I have priorities, like, and I have purpose and I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like my kids are my purpose. Um, Like I, I work for money to ensure the lifestyle and legacy of my kids. Like if they, you know, if they weren't in the picture, I don't know that I'd be doing all this just to be perfectly transparent about it. Like I'm working for my kids' tuition, their college fund and their legacy. Um, if that wasn't the case, I'm, I'd am i probably be on a little bit of a different path, to be honest with you. So as I, as I, I know, I know why I show up to work. Um, but I also know what I'm there to do when I'm there and why I'm doing it, which keeps me really focused. Mm -hmm. Um, and purposeful in the way that I accomplish and approach the work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I never let anything come of me being a mom. And um, when I talked about showing up authentically in the interview, like I was super duper clear about that. Mm. Like I was really clear that like work will never supersede my parenting. So if that's a trade-off that, and I will tell any job that like, work will never supersede my parenting. So if that's a decision that needs to be made, then this is not the right organization for me. Mm. Period. Um, it's just a non-negotiable for me. Um, so if that if that's a decision that, that's being asked, uh, that's an easy choice every single time. Mm. Um, I haven't had a, a situation where that's, you know, come into question mm-hmm. yet. Um, I mean, it might, but it hasn't yet. Um, and so I think by having like a really laser focus on what's important to me, it allows me to kind of make those choices accordingly. But I think if I was struggling with it and I wasn't really clear and I was still trying to say, oh, well, I'm after this or I'm after that. Um, I, I think it would, I think I would have more of a conflict. Mm. Um, I think by having kids later in life, I was able to kind of get that, um, that phase where I wanted to career climb a little bit out of my system before I had them. And so, you know, after I had them, then I kind of had clarity and said, look, I did that. And I kind of understood what that yielded for me and how that felt and um, um, what return that yielded to my heart. And then I had my kids and I'm like, okay, yep. I, I know what I, I know which one I choose. This one is it. Like definitely like my title does not keep me warm at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want that title on uh, my tombstone when I die, but I do definitely want mother to, um, my children on the tombstone. Mm-hmm. So I, I want that to be first and foremost. And, um, and, and that, that helps me really like stay
0: focused in how I approach things. Got it. makes I love that. Love, love, love that. Okay. So lightning round, don't think too much about it. It's literally the first thing that comes to your mind. So what's one piece of career advice that you wish you had gotten earlier in your career?
1: You're your own best advocate. Mm.
0: What's a career lesson that took you the longest to learn, but has had the biggest impact on your career? Trust yourself. Um, What is a book that you could read over and over again? I do not read business books. I hate them. Well, no, any book. It doesn't have to be business. (laughs) Any book. It does not have to be, a, it does, not have to be <laughs> it does not have to be business. <laughs> okay. That was such a triggering question. You're like, no. Oh, no. Like, look,
1: um <laughs> I just never do. I kind of also feel the titles generally, the title and the back cover are self-explanatory. It's like seven habits of highly effective people. What are they? Just tell me. What are the seven things? Um, um uh, also, I am a mother to a six and a seven year old. So I, you know, like reading time is not like, that's like a luxury. Like, honestly, I, I don't have a lot of time for it. Like I've been trying to finish Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall literally since May. So, you know, I'm hoping that
0: I get through it before 2021 comes around. Well, what's your favorite children's book? We have moms who listen. Like if there's a, a book that you would recommend for moms of, of kids around your age, like what's one that you love or that your kids love?
1: Um, we love what the
0: dinosaurs did last night. See, there, there's a book. Um, and then, so the last question is, um, we all know that decisions about your career are made when you are not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you are not in the room?
1: Oh, I know what people are saying. Um, I know what that people say. are saying, yes, I know that people are saying I'm effective, and I know that people are saying that I'm that I keep it real. Um, I, I hope that they're not using that as a weapon against me, but I know that some people do. Mm. And
0: on that note, thank you so much, Tiana. This was so awesome. I have like a bunch of like out of body moments in like in this. And so I'm going to listen to it again before I even put it out. But like, man, and we didn't even get into the meat of your work, but like, I feel like you, you dropped so many gems on, on this episode. So We know you'll be teaching a class for I choose the ladder at some point in 2021 so y'all, this is just a preview of the magic that is to come from tiana but um, thank you so much for your time and um I can't wait to see what you do next.
1: Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome.
0: I told you all that Tiana went there literally like open book from start to finish. The advice that she gave was like, y'all saw that there was a part of the episode where my soul got snatched from my body and I had to take a moment to process and regroup. But you all know that I love to end every episode with my top three gems um, that I got from the conversation. This one was hard to pick just three because, I mean, I had so many yes moments in the episode. Um, But the first one I would say was around trying to mold yourself into something else right we talk about this all the time we just talked about this on career chat like it is exhausting trying to be who you're not and having people meet the version of you that they that you think that they're going to like people respond to authenticity so show up as yourself and trust that the people who you need in your tribe will be attracted to who you are as a person The second thing, my soul snatching moment is around imposter syndrome. Like you are not going to be allowed to arrive as a black woman in corporate until the powers that be deem you ready. So don't ever question if you are in a room, if you are ready to be there. Like you were probably ready to be there 12 to 18 months before you actually got access to the room. So you got this, you have the proof, you got the receipts, like trust that you belong in the spaces that you're in. And then I guess the last one is about if you don't, You won't have to get ready if you stay ready. Right. Make sure that you all are keeping track of your receipts, that you are you have a community of people who are celebrating you um, and also reminding you of your greatness when you seem um, to be a little shaky. I'm actually going to be launching something for I choose a ladder that's going to help you all do that in Q1. So, again, just make sure that you stay ready and you won't ever have to get ready. Um, if you'd like to keep the conversation going, you can do so by connecting with us on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder or on Facebook at I Choose the Ladder. You can also subscribe to our newsletter by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B to 66866. Again, that's CLIMB, CLIMB to 66866. And also, if you have not gotten your review planner, we're getting pretty low on what we have left for 2020. So make sure you go to the reviewplanner.com and grab your copy of the planner. Um, and until next time, thank you for listening.